Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode, as well as one of the 14 future episodes in the series, from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. This conversation occurred at the offices of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada in Ottawa. Dr. Mormon is a well-known and frequently consulted leader in research policy. His insights into how to support research, implementation, and utilization processes are enlightened and provocative. His holistic point of view and his historical perspective are having an influence in many circles. I found his commentary on leadership, infrastructure, and emerging trends very useful. I hope you do too. Well, good morning. I'm uh, here in Ottawa with David Mormon. I'm the uh, Senior Policy Officer for the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Uh, as a senior policy officer, my major role is to assist the council in developing policies on a wide range of issues having to do with the, uh, the granting of uh, public monies uh, for research in the social sciences and humanities. Uh, this encompasses a, a wide range of, uh, of um, specific issues and challenges uh, that have to do with uh, the way that monies are granted, uh, the, the scope of those uh, activities, uh, the specific policies around how uh, money is granted by the federal government, and playing a, uh, a steering or a leadership role in the, uh, in the development of the social sciences and humanities in Canada. This stems from our legislative mandate to promote and assist the social sciences. Uh, we've been around for 25, oh, almost 30 years now. Uh, next year is our 30th anniversary. And uh, we have a budget, uh, current budget of about $300 million annually for uh, grants to the social sciences and humanities. So you, met, you mentioned leadership. And leadership is one of the themes of, of these interviews. You've also talked about production of knowledge. One of the, uh, the things that the Canadian Council on Learning is doing is trying to promote knowledge exchange. And I believe here at Shirk, the term knowledge mobilization is, is often used. And one way that knowledge exchange or knowledge mobilization is, is described is, is bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. What does this mean to you? Uh, how, do you how does the Council and how do you, does your work intersect with knowledge mobilization? It's important that, uh, that you look at the larger context in this. The research process is not one that's simply a matter of uh, giving money to a researcher at a university and that researcher goes off and, and does something, creates new knowledge. It's a much more complex um, and a much more uh, uh, holistic approach that all of the councils uh, take to it. And this has to do with all of the various steps within the research or knowledge generation process in itself. And then that, have, that has everything from the uh, the foresight exercises and the formation of original ideas, the scoping out of gaps in our current knowledge and where we m might wish to go in terms of new knowledge, all the way through the research process to the communication of research to those who would use it. Um, and those who would use it could be other researchers, could be ordinary citizens, uh, could be uh, you know your typical family members, uh, uh, ordinary Canadians, or as is usually said, uh, policy makers in a variety of spheres of life, including all sectors, the public and the private sector. Uh, our granting programs cover, or we try to cover, all aspects of those uh, of that research process in itself, that knowledge generation process. 
One of the areas that I've been working with now for oh, going on six years is the whole area of scholarly communication. How do you take the knowledge that's generated by university researchers and put it in the hands of those who would use it? We're not in the business of determining those who would use it, but we are in the business of ensuring that that communication takes place as efficiently and as effectively as possible. It is, after all, the Canadian taxpayers who put up the money for the research in the first place. They have a, a reasonable right to access the knowledge that's created of it. But how do you go about doing that has been the big challenge. Well, that's my question. How do you go about doing that? A couple of years ago, under the leadership of Mark Renault, our former president, he really recognized that in Canada, the, real, the only real serious area within the research community in Canada that needs attention is the area of scholarly communication, is the communication of research results to those who would use it. We have excellent researchers, we have excellent research capacity, wonderful facilities, first-rate universities, but as with everybody else in the world, getting the knowledge out of the university and into the hands of citizens is, is a challenge. And this is a challenge that's been recognized for many years. So Mark Renault established a unit within SHRC to deal with what he termed knowledge mobilization. And the thinking behind the term knowledge mobilization is, uh, in the French uh, way of looking at it, mobilisation, moving knowledge in itself, making sure that it moves out of the academy and into the hands of those who need that knowledge. And we've been going about trying to figure out how to do that how best to do that with the limited resources that we have, what kind of policies need to need to frame that, the grants around that, what other activities other than simply granting need to take place. And this has resulted in a variety of uh, specific programs, uh, Knowledge and Society program in particular, where we give grants to, uh, to universities and a variety of educational institutions uh, to build what are the social science and humanities equivalents of technology transfer offices. And uh, they're, they've been working now for about, uh, about two years uh, and, and making some significant headway and building an, a number of specific products or creating a number of specific products that then can be used as alternatives to the scholarly article or the scholarly monograph or the research report that is meant primarily for internal purposes within the academic community. These things are now coming online, one-page fact sheet sheets for uh, policymakers within government, uh, research reports on new innovations that go right to the hands of the of private sector folks that can then be commercialized or used to improve services, uh, direct consultations with, um, with both public and private sector uh, management uh, cadres in order to ensure that the research that's done on things like management in particular within the university gets out of the university and into hands of people that use it. And this comes in a variety of different forms. Interpersonal interaction at the individual level or the very, very small group level. Interpersonal action, interaction at the larger group level. Uh, the discussion fora. Those could be face-to-face -face or virtual. The, uh, the recorded information that is packaged in particular ways. Knowledge synthesis is a good example of that. We were just uh, in the process of developing a knowledge synthesis program that would fund senior researchers to bring together a wide range of knowledge on a specific issue into one compact report or monograph or whatever is appropriate given the audience that, uh, that is looking for this knowledge. There's also, of course, a variety of other things. We have a, a journals program 
uh, that funds academic journals and transfer journals. Transfer journals being those that are, have a more knowledge transfer focus to them right. than, than strictly academic journals. Uh, there's a number of fundamental policy questions around that, including the, uh, the open access movement and uh, taking, uh, experimenting with new business models of the publication process in order to expand access to academic knowledge, knowledge that's produced in the university environment. So there's a lot of things that we're experimenting with, and uh, we don't yet know what works best. Uh, we're very much in an evaluation phase. Uh, we know that uh, we have made significant progress in certain areas. The journals community in particular has moved rapidly uh, into the new arena, if you want to say it that, taking advantage of new formats of electronic publication, of new ways of conducting their business, of new ways of raising the revenue that's necessary to, to finance the communication of research results, of using uh, a variety of new tools that are emerging. Web 2.0 is a good example. Podcasts are, are part of that are part of that, that movement. We're looking at now at things like uh, a essentially something along the lines of a, a YouTube for the academic community. Uh, what would that look like? How would it function? Who would finance it? Uh, who would participate? And what kind of value would be drawn from that? We know that uh, the research that we fund uh, shows that these methods, these new methods of communications can have significant impact and power uh, in terms of being able to to knit communities together, to create clusters of like-minded individuals, can that be used in an academic con context? And more importantly, can the knowledge that's created in the academic context be moved out of the ivory tower by using these tools and into the hands of ordinary Canadians? One, one of the things that the, the Canadian Council on Learning on is doing is trying to create a culture of lifelong learning. In listening to you talk about all of these types of things that are happening in many different places, do you see a cultural shift? And is it one that encourages ongoing learning and conversations between these sectors, or is it more of a push? I mean, who's who's demanding it? There's an enormous supply within the universities, but one of the criticisms has been that, oh, well, there's not enough demand. Do you see that cultural shift where there's more demand for, for what's available? Yeah, it, uh, there's, uh, there's increasing demand, there's increasing resistance, uh, there's increasing push, okay. and there's increasing existence. It is not a homogeneous world. Um, it is big and complex. And that's one of the factors that is very seldom really taken into consideration in these things. The applying simple formulas to this always results in failure. And this is one of the real difficulties. One of the things that uh, that has emerged in the last couple of years is we now have the second or the third most educated population in the world. 49% of Canadian adults now have some form of post-secondary education. Which is surprising. I was just looking at the data from 1950 and the entire infrastructure in 1950 served about 5%. Yes. So we're talking a thousand percent increase yeah. in 60 years. The impact of that is just beginning to be felt, and it is beginning to be felt particularly on the demand side of your equation. But it's also resonating on the supply side as well. What we're finding is that the concept of knowledge mobilization need not be explained to very many people because they, first of all, have the education to be able to grasp concepts like that, and second, have the education that allows them to read academic materials, to understand them, to absorb them, to put them into practice in daily life. That creates a demand like we've never seen before. The audience for academic research knowledge is prepared, is 
the academic research community prepared to talk to that audience. And that's one of the big challenges. Everybody, of course, has to live with the baggage of their past. And it was only very recently uh, that academics were asked to engage with the population in general on an ongoing active way. Community service has always been uh, one element of the Canadian academic community, but that has been, to be honest, done in a paternalistic fashion. The well-educated average Canadian doesn't accept that paternalism anymore, and for good reason. There is nearly as qualified as just about every one of the academics that produce a knowledge in the first place. Those dynamics are just beginning to work themselves out, but the potential is enormous uh, when you think about it for fostering real communication between these communities, in fact, integrating those communities. Like, as you know, we've done through things like the CURA program, the Community University Research Alliances. The whole point of that program is integration, seamless integration between the academy, the research, and the capacity for knowledge building within the academy, and those who are seeking solutions to real problems in daily life. So what does this mean for leadership? When you have a, a mm. paternalistic system, I mean, it's pretty clear who are the leaders and who are the followers. But when the leaders and followers in, in a population are very similar to one another, I mean, are almost have the same intellectual capacity, have the similar kinds of education, are working in equally complex professions and, and um, you know, seeking opportunities, what does that mean for leadership? What kind of different leadership model needs to emerge? It is a d indeed a different leadership model. And uh, our current president, Chad Gaffield, has really begun to refine his language around this. And you know what he's saying now, and, and what's in fact uh, the staff around here have been encouraging him to say is that the, goal, the real objective of an agency like Shirk is not leadership in an old-fashioned sense. We don't tell people where, where they should go. But it's rather facilitating the potential and the connections and the communication and the production of knowledge rather than simply uh, telling people, well, you should you know, focus on this or you should talk to this person. No, we, what we try to do is set the conditions and provide the resources and necessary to allow people to do what they think is best, what knowledge directions they think are most important, rather than us predetermining these things. Can you give an example? A good example. The Government of Canada came to us focusing on the second part of our mandate and providing advice to the Government of Canada and uh, within the larger hydrogen economy initiative and said one of the real problems around building industries that provide alternative fuels like hydrogen as a source of, as a carrier of energy is all of the economic and the social and indeed the cultural aspects of introduction of new technologies especially highly disruptive technologies into what is a current stable energy mix oil and electricity how we go about securing that advice was done in a fashion that fosters the communication between communities and allows the Government of Canada to tap into the best knowledge. Rather than us simply selecting a number of experts to go and talk to the policymakers, we established a forum that quite consciously brought together the major stakeholders in a variety of different ways in order for them to have a discussion about what is really important and, more importantly, what is possible given today's context and what we expect to happen tomorrow. And those were primarily the academic researchers in the social sciences and humanities talking to the engineers, something that very, very seldom ever happens, and talking directly to the engineers about potential. The engineers would say, look, we don't have the technology for that yet. 
And yet the social science would say, yes, but this technology that you do have isn't doing the job properly or can't be introduced or the economics of it don't function properly. There are second events specifically focused on the private sector concerns and government concerns with academia, the academic researchers, essentially being the mediators of that conversation. The result of that has been a shift in policies within the province of the government of Ontario, uh, new investments in new technologies at the federal level, and the building of not only research capacity but an understanding of the importance of energy issues and especially energy and new technology and environmental issues, that conjunction of issues within the academic community and within the broader Canadian community as a whole. The way that we went about doing it was facilitating those discussions, not trying to steer them, not showing leadership in, a, in the usual sense of that word, but leadership in the sense that we have access to these communities, we can bring them together and we can provide the resources to make sure that they do the discussions themselves. And this is why communication is really at the center of all. Part of what comes out of that are sets of relationships that didn't previously exist before. What's the role of an organization like, like Shirk in sustaining those relationships? Is there a role? In order for new relationships to be sustained, there has to be interest on both parties or all of the parties involved. And the parties have to see real benefits, not economic benefits in any narrow sense, but real benefits out of the sustaining of that relationship. In certain instances, that needs to be facilitated at the beginning by Shirk and let go. And that's the most appropriate way. In other instances, it has to be facilitated with financial support on an ongoing basis. Because some sectors of our society have access to the resources that are needed to maintain communications, and some don't. Um, the community services sector that we work with through our CURE program, for example, simply doesn't have the resources that are necessary to create large internet discussion forums, um, really interactive peer-to-peer uh, communication systems, um, the annual conferences that come through the Q CU Expo, for example. Those need to be funded beyond the capacity of the individuals doing this, engaged directly in the discussion, because the resources aren't there. So sometimes they have to be sustained, sometimes they don't. The hydrogen economy discussions have taken a long life of their own. We don't finance them anymore. And yet, we've just seen, just today, an announcement of the creation of a new um, network of centers of excellence in Alberta involving three universities that focus directly on the issues of energy and the environment. Now, we don't pretend that we created that NCE or anything, but through the discussions we have, particularly involving the University of Calgary, we were able to push the envelope forward and we were able to raise the consciousness of the importance of those issues amongst the academic community and, more importantly, amongst the broader community. Um, so, we don't have to sustain that one anymore. So sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It has to be dealt with on a case-to-case -case basis. These are human beings. They have different capacities. Not everyone is equal. Uh, equity does not exist in this world. Some have resources, some don't. Um, and it really depends on whom you're dealing with.